uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, we, we said uh, last time uh, that we are sort of coming to, coming to the end uh, here. Uh, Solomon is, uh, if you will, making his final uh, descent. He's cir- circling the airport, uh, about, to, about to make a landing. We probably will have about two weeks left uh, in, this, uh, in this study uh, so we are beginning to wrap things up, and Solomon is is doing that, giving us a number of uh, sort of ad admonitions here at the end of this book. And if it's not just a book, it's a sermon. I mean, it's a you know we study these things, uh, you know we break it up into its parts, uh, but we have to remember that these things all came as as a whole. So they would have. It might be good for you as we kind of get to the end of this study to just go back and just read the book of Ecclesiastes and think of it that way. Think of a preacher standing up and just delivering this entire message. And when you go through it like that, it's and now that we've gone through it in detail and uh, looked at the uh, looked at its parts, it's good to sort of put it all back together and to s- sort of have it hit you in in that particular way. So Solomon is sort of summarizing these things in the same same way that a preacher would. Uh, you know, he would introduce a topic and then he would give you maybe an outline and several points, but at the end of a sermon would come back and sort of summarize things, uh, kind of sum things up. So uh, he's giving us um, this summary of all the things that he's talked about up to this point, really giving us some important uh, implications. Uh, and we mentioned last week that he's really, you know, at this point, I think one of the things that we're gripped with at the end of this study is just how much time we've wasted. Uh, not only the time before we came to know Christ, but even the time since then, uh, all of the squandered resources and, and energy and uh, opportunities. Uh, and we can't change that, but it seems as if Solomon is saying, listen, you recognize that, uh, but you can redeem the time. You, going forward, you can buy up these, these opportunities that God has for you and uh, really pushes us to think about the urgency of, of, of our lives and, and, and those God-given responsibilities that we have as, as Christians. So he gave to us, uh, we mentioned there's three principles about life for those who are both young and old that we find here, in particular this section beginning in chapter 11, verse 7, down through chapter 12, uh, verse 8. Um, and we looked at two of the three principles uh, last Sunday. The first one was, uh, and again, these are just summary statements, so they're, they're not necessarily things that Solomon has not addressed in other places in, in the sermon or in this book, um, but he's revisiting these things and really, like I said, just putting a, a lot of a stress on them. And this, this first one is this issue of rejoicing in your life, uh, enjoying life as a gift from, from God's hands, enjoying uh, God's good good gifts, uh, whether it's food or work uh, or some or other responsibility, uh, uh, whether it's marriage, uh, this is a, a significant part of Solomon's counsel for living life in a Genesis 3 world, in a sin-cursed world, because he knows, he's explained to us uh, over and over again the, uh, the difficulties of this life, uh, the fact that the curse is hard and God has given you and I certain blessings in life to help reduce the frustration level uh, in life and to help guide us through some of those difficult and tight tight places. And so he sort of addresses the, the old people, we said, 
uh, and encourages them to rejoice over their long life, to enjoy uh, the sweetness of life. And then he turns to the young people and commands them to get all of the enjoyment out of life that they can possibly get, which sounds like something that the world would be saying, right? The world would be telling our young people, just go out there and just get all the, all the, all the enjoyment that you can. But there's a qualifier that he gives to us there in chapter 11, verse 9, at the end of that verse, when he says to the young people, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. Literally, the, the God will bring you into the, the judgment. So there's this very definitive judgment that Solomon has in mind uh, out there in the future by, uh, by which every, every uh, individual, young and old, are going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And he says, listen, enjoy life as a young person. Get all the enjoyment you can, but just understand that you're going to give an account to the Lord for the way that you live and the decisions that you make. And so wise living, Solomon says, essentially enjoys life, uh, but it, do, it, it does so within the boundaries of God's principles as revealed in the Word of God. And, and, and people that are, you know, from, from Solomon's perspective, we ought to get the most we can out of life as long as we are both loving God and fearing God. So enjoyment has a legitimate God-ordained place in in the Christian's life. Uh, so rejoice. Uh, rejoice responsibly. Uh, rejoice rejoice in your life. Uh, the second principle was that we're to repent of our disputing with God. And this was uh, verse 10, the last verse there of chapter 11. He says, So uh, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And so he's been talking along the way about our response to the frustrations of life, our response to living in this, this sin-cursed world. Sometimes we're fearful. Sometimes we're anxious. Uh, many times we're bitter about the circumstances of life. Uh, often we complain, uh, not just to others, but we complain to God about the difficulties and the, the pressures of life. And he's saying that, it's as if when we do that, that by our response, we're telling God that, that God should not have done what he did, that God should not have cursed life the way that he did, uh, that somehow God has made a mistake in his providence, uh, telling him that, that really you and I know, know better than he does uh, what should happen and what should take place. And he's just saying, you've got to get that out of your heart. You've got to remove that anxiety, that sinful fear, that complaining, that grumbling, that bitterness out of your life because life is too short to be squandered uh, disputing with God. So get that out of your life. Uh, remove this, the pain uh, that, that we experience, the evil that we experience uh, when we are squandering life and going through life, making unbiblical and unwise decisions. We, we incur these consequences in our life as a result of our idolatry. And Solomon says that we need to put these things away from our souls, our hearts, and the passion of our life. So it's this sort of summary at the end, just saying stop, stop brooding, stop complaining, stop, stop, stop uh, feeding your anger, uh, stop being anxious and worrying all the time. Don't let those things eat away your soul and your heart. Don't become a bitter man or a bitter woman resenting God 
for what He's given you or where He has put you or placed you in life, your lot in life, uh, and in the end provoking God to judgment. So rejoice in your life. That's principle number one. Repent of your disputing with God. That's principle number two. And then the third principle we'll talk about this morning, and that is remember your Creator as early as possible. Remember your Creator as early as possible. Now, Solomon's third instruction seems to be mainly for young people, uh, even though the old people may better understand uh, what he has to say in these verses. Let me read them for us. We're picking up here in chapter 12, verse 1. Solomon writes, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through the windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver, silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now in this section, Solomon paints a fascinating picture of old age and eventually death. But before we get to that imagery, I want to think first just look carefully at this verse, verse 1. He just says here, remember uh, also your Creator in the days of your youth, which, which is an interesting statement because Solomon refers here for the first and only time uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes as the Creator. Uh, up to this point, throughout this book, he's used the term Elohim to refer, for, to, refer to God, but here he uses a term that describes God as the one who creates and in verse 7, he says this, then, then the dust, which is an obvious reference back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and the curse of Adam, uh, and we've seen these references all through Ecclesiastes. He says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So when you die, says Solomon, your spirit, your breath of life, returns to God. God, God takes it back. So the question is, what do you call the one? who gives life, and then when he is done, he takes it back. You call, well, you call him your, your creator, right? He's the, he's the creator. So when Solomon says, remember your creator, and then he talks about death in verse 7 and says that, that, life, that, that, life, that, was, that life that was given to you at conception by God is taken back by him when you die, he's emphasizing that God controls the entire cycle of your life. She was just saying, listen, this is, he's the one that, that gave you life to begin with. He's the one that's going to take that back when, when he's ready and his timing. Or we might say this, he is the potter and we are the clay, right? So he's, he, he is the one in charge of the beginning of our lives, the end of our lives, and everything in between. 
from conception to death, God is in charge of all of that. And so he just simply says, what do you call that, what do you call that kind of God <laughs> that is in charge of your beginning, end, and everything in between? You call him your creator, which implies your utter dependence on God, uh, which implies your, your complete submission to, to his authority. So he says, remember your creator. And, and to do this, to fulfill that command, we have to understand this word remember, which meant more than just to have a thought pass through your mind. In fact, it's the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, where it says that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. So it's not like God said, Noah, <laughs> you know, there you are. It's, it's, not, it's not that, right? In, in, in a theological sense, it means to think about something or to think about someone and to act on that knowledge. So when it says God remembered Noah, it's not saying that God forgot about Noah. It's saying that God took note of Noah and then he went into action, right? Uh, When the Bible says remember Lot's wife, it's not encouraging you and I to simply remember who she was, right? It's encouraging you to also think about what she did and why she did it, and what happened to her as a result, and if there's something that's commendable about her to emulate that, but if there's something that should stand as a warning for us to take note of that and to act accordingly. So we might might say, remember and take action. Think about God and take specific action in light of those thoughts. Remember God and act on that knowledge. So it's the very opposite of being what we refer to sometimes as a practical atheist. A practical atheist is someone that believes God and includes God in their, if you will, their doctrinal statement, right? So when they, they profess to know God, they profess to worship God, but the reality is that throughout their day and throughout their week, they don't think about God at all, right? So God's only in their doctrinal statement, but when it comes to actually thinking about Him and living light living life in light of who he is and what he's done, they don't do that. They fail to do that. And in contrast to that approach, Solomon's command is to remember your creator. So you remember who God is and you remember who you are, right? God is the eternal one who exists independently from all that he's made, right? When we say God is holy, we typically think of of holiness as, as purity, right? God is pure, which is true, but the, 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 probably the more accurate way to think about holiness is that God is separate, right? God is distinct. God is different from everything else. And so Solomon's saying, listen, remember that. Remember who God is. He is the Holy One. He is distinct. He is independent from everything that He's created. He's glorious. He's pure. And then think about yourself in light of that, right? You are slaves to God's purposes. You are subject to God's providence, I mean, how many times has Solomon says, you don't know what's coming? You don't know the future. I mean, if you, just that one thing, right? Just tell us what's going to happen in detail tomorrow. Anybody? <laughs> right? I mean, just tell us in detail what will happen in, in your life, my life. I mean, just, just, we'll just pick a topic. You don't know. You don't know those things. So there's this, there's this vast difference between who we are and who God is. We are subject to his providence. We are created in his image for his glory That is why we exist. So to remember your creator is to consider who God is and the implications of that for your life. To live your whole life for him. 
to be mindful of God in every circumstance, to include God in your plans, to praise Him for all of His blessings, to pray to Him in all of your troubles. As Derek Kidner writes, he says, This remembrance is no perfunctory or purely mental act. It is to drop our pretense of self-sufficiency and commit ourselves to Him. To remember Him. To remember Him when you're at home. To remember Him when you're at school. To remember Him when outside doing some job or some activity. Or inside in the kitchen or in the bedroom at work or at play. Remembering Him in everything that you do. right? Not just remembering Him today, right? Not just when you show up here at Faith Community Church, but it's remembering Him on Tuesday, right? When you're doing something very public or on Thursday night when you're doing something very private, it's to live before the face of God, to devote ourselves to Him and to commit ourselves to Him. And he says this to the youth, that as they are enjoying life, that they would keep Him in the center of all of it because He is the source of true enjoyment. God is the center of pleasure. He is the the source of pleasure. He is the ultimate pleasure. And so when he's telling this to the youth, remember your creator, and he just told them, you guys get the most you can out of life. He's just saying, if you want the most enjoyment you can possibly get out of life, you cannot do that apart from remembering your creator. Right? A love relationship with an infinite God. Solomon says, I want you to consider every life experience, every opportunity, every thought, every action in light of the one who gave you life. The one who, if it weren't for him, you wouldn't be here. The one who gives life and the one who takes it when he pleases. Remember him. Now, for most people, this is something that you do when you get older, right? Old people think about God. <laughs> That's kind of the way people think, right? I'm saying, because while we're young, right, we're supposed to be having fun, right? I mean, this is, I think, the, the average, this is the view of, of most young people, that, that we'll have all of this enjoyment and all this fun apart from uh, worshiping God and, and walking with God and, and growing in our knowledge of God. We'll have all this fun, and then when we get old, then we'll, rem- then we'll think about God. That's the way most people think about life. That when we, when we get too old to do anything else, we will contemplate God. Right? We'll sit around in, 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 our, in our easy chair and we'll have our Bible right there and we'll open it up and occasionally we'll read it and we'll have hymns playing in the background, right? On, a, on, a, on an eight track, right? Tape. <laughs> I mean, that's the way young people think about it sometimes. Solomon says that's worldly. That, that, that is a foolish way to live life. The time to put God at the center of your life, the center of your enjoyment, and the center of everything that you do is not when you're old and feeble, but when you're young. When you're young. Remember your Creator early and often. When you have energy and vigor, He commands those who are young, don't wait, start now, when you have enthusiasm and strength. And to drive home this point, Solomon proceeds to give you the most amazing picture of the infirmities of old age. Not for the purpose of making you afraid, not for the, for the, for the purpose of stirring up fear about growing old, but to compel you to turn to your Creator while you were young. As usual, Ecclesiastes is true to life. 
right? Even the painful parts, the parts that we sometimes try to hide behind closed doors. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, when's the last time that you went to a nursing home? When's the last time, you know, that you actually saw this graphically displayed in your life of someone that's literally deteriorating day by day by day? We typically don't look at those things, don't pay attention to those things, and and we don't want to think about those things, right? Solomon says, listen, your rose-colored glasses, we check those back at Ecclesiastes 1.1, right? And you don't get to carry those through the rest of the book. Young or old, Solomon is going to speak to you with incredible candor about the process of aging and death. Death and our steps leading up to it if we live long enough. Solomon brings these things out into the open not to scare you but to motivate you to serve God now because the curse of Genesis 3 is relentlessly operative. Right, As the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 4.16, our outer man is decaying. Literally, it's a term for spoiling and perishing, wasting away. Right, We are all growing older and eventually we will die. This is not something that Solomon has hid from us at all throughout the book. I mean, numerous times we've talked about this issue of death, the certainty of death. So Solomon pleads, get in the habit of serving God now while you possess your fullest ability to do so. Don't buy into the lie of the world that says that I'll put all of that off and I'll serve God later. No, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then he mentions this. He says, before before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now, from the verses that follow, we understand that the evil days are the final failings of health and mind that precede and signal our death. Youth is packed with vitality and productivity and strength, but there may very well come a time, says Solomon, when life becomes weary, tiresome, and painfully drags on. He calls them evil days, which doesn't mean that they're they're wrong or they're morally evil. Rather, they are the tiring and the weary days of failing loss. Loss of eyesight, loss of hearing, loss of memory, loss of ability, loss of mental capacity, loss of independence. Again, Solomon isn't making fun of old age, and he's not trying to make you fearful of it. He's simply telling you to love God, to love Christ, and to serve Him now. Because there will come a time... When, yes, you may have a deep sense of joy and a walk with the Lord and a great sense of fellowship with the Lord in prayer in the closing years of your life and a growing sense of anticipation, but you will also say, I have no delights. So remember your Creator. Verse 2, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. This, this verse compares the troubles of old age to a gathering storm. Philip Ryken states this, this, uh, says it this way. He states, Both night and day are darkened by clouds, and after the rain falls, the storm clouds gather again. This is what happens as people grow old. When we are young, there is still time for the, st- for the sky to clear. But when we are old, we suffer one trouble after another with little or no time to recover.
Some people believe that what Solomon is referring to here is the gradual fading of the mental faculties, that the, that the mind begins to go, mental powers begin to go, the powers of reasoning, the powers of, of imagination, uh, the, the, the powers of, of memory. Someone once said, about the time that your face clears up, your mind begins to go, right? <laughs> because literally, I think, I forget the exact number, but it's like mid-20s, I think that we begin to have less and less cells or something like that. <laughs> so just about the time we get the acne resolved, then, then our mind begins to fade. Regarding verse 2, Derek Kidner also says that this scene is, quote, somber enough to bring home to us not only the fading of physical and mental powers, but the, but the more general desolations of old age. There are many lights that are liable then to be withdrawn besides those of the senses and faculties as one by one old friends are taken, familiar customs change, and long-held hopes now have to be abandoned. Which is pretty distressing. <laughs> but it's true. Right? It's true. And after 11 chapters, Solomon isn't about to start concealing the truth and protecting you from the realities of living in a Genesis 3 world. So he says, Remember your Creator in the days when you are young, before the time comes when delight is diminished and the clouds refuse to part. Now, in verses 3 to 4, Solomon continues to describe aging in graphic terms. Uh, but he changes the imagery. He says, remember your crea- creator before, verse 3, in, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through the windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Solomon describes for us what was once a great house, a a great mansion, but one that has gradually fallen into disrepair and decay. He uses that image of, of a grand but decaying mansion to portray the gradual physical decline of a young man once proud and strong, but no longer so. Perhaps Solomon was thinking about his own father David, right, when he wrote these words. King David, who was once a a, a valiant warrior, uh, a strong leader, but who eventually, according to 1 Kings 1.1, grew old and frail, so frail that no matter how many clothes they covered him with, he could not keep warm. So let's, let's consider the imagery. The watchmen of the house tremble, which most likely refers to the hands and the arms of a man, Right? The hands and the arms are, are, are what a man uses to guard the body, to, to fend off attacks. They feed and they provide. Once agile and powerful, in time, Solomon says, they weaken and they begin to tremble and to shake. Just this week, earlier in the week, I heard on, on the radio a lady sharing about her father who was now old and could not feed himself anymore and uh, because and she actually mentioned this because his hands and his his arms shake so badly that he that he could not even hold a utensil and uh, she was just sharing about the the love that her mother had for her father and how her mom would uh, literally feed him every bite of food um, every day so the watchmen of the house tremble 
Next, he says, the mighty men stoop, which in, in this Solomon depicts the male servants in this decaying mansion. Uh, in its prime, the servants of this great house were tall and straight-backed and strong, but now he describes them as bent and shuffling, which probably refers to your body's most powerful servants, your legs. In fact, in the Hebrew it says, the strong men are bending themselves. It's a reflexive verb, so it's just saying that the, the strong men are bending themselves, <laughs> as if to say, they're doing this on their own. Okay? Yeah, how many of you all? <laughs> I think I just saw somebody earlier coming to church, and they were kind of like, this is the legs, right? In other words, he's just saying that your knees will begin to buckle. They'll give in, and they'll do that on their own accord without, without warning. This is another sign of the onset of old age. Someone says, when your knees buckle, but your belt won't, right? (laughs) Once a person's legs were thick and strong and solid, but with age, they become weak and unstable. The next image looks at the female servants. Those are the male servants. Now he looks at the female servants in the mansion. He says, the grinding ones... Stand idle because they are few. These are the the female servants in a large household who would spend their days pulverizing grain between two rocks in order to make flour for baking bread. But in this house that Solomon describes, the work has practically stopped because the grinders are too few and they become discouraged. Of course, he's talking about here the teeth saying that as your, as your teeth fall out, the few that are left get discouraged and become ineffective. Mealtimes are prolonged because it takes so long to get food lined up with the few remaining grinders, right? Or just say you, you go from steak to nutritional drinks, right? <laughs> from meats to applesauce, okay? Those are the teeth. Then Solomon says this, those who look through windows... Grow dim, an obvious reference to the eyes. He's simply saying that the eyes darken, the eyes that could spot things at, at, in earlier years far away and read the smallest of print can't do that anymore, right? Can I get a witness? Yes? Okay. This has just happened to me in the last few months. Um, to that point, I walked into Randy Cook's office and I said, so now where did you get your uh, reading glasses? You know, <laughs> how much did those cost just a few months ago? So I, I have them sitting. I don't use them a lot, but I've just found that for the first time in the matter of the last two, literally two to three months that when I go down to look at my Bible, it takes a second, you know, and you're having to push it away a little bit and pull it close and that makes, makes a little, little do. What's that? Yes, welcome. See, if Mike Lee were here, we would be having this. He was challenging this. Uh, so when is that it? Yeah, yeah. It's the. It's all about the font. Yeah, it's all about the font. He continues here. He says the doors on the street are shut. Uh, now, in a number of places, the Old Testament refers to the lips as the doors, as doors, and the doorway was a means of communication with the outside world. But now Solomon says the doorway is shut, which, which speaks of the gradual descent into silence which overtakes many elderly people. They talk less and less until communication with the outside world is shut off completely. In fact, even this has this concept of even the, 
even the, the, the lips actually closing in, which it, if you think about the teeth disappearing, right, is a natural result, consequence of that. Uh, another, he says, as the sound of the grinding mill is low. Now, to understand this, you have to Im- imagine sort of a courtyard with an open area in the center and houses all around the courtyard sort of laid out in a, in a square, uh, sort of a square type pattern. And this open area was the place where the grinding mill was located and much of the work got done. So in the middle of the day, the rooms of this house would have been filled with the noise and the racket of the labor which was being done outside and the conversations and the laughter of those working in the courtyard, such as the female servants working with the grinding stones. But for the elderly person, those sounds eventually become indistinct. And over time, fade out altogether. People seem to mumble, and everyone seems to talk in a much lower tone than they used to. But interestingly, Solomon contrasts deafness on one hand with lightness of sleep on the other, because he adds this, one will arise at the sound of the bird. That is to say, the elderly person who can't hear the preacher at church anymore But when the earliest of early birds chirps in the morning, they immediately wake up and can't fall back to sleep again. Okay? Now, anybody want to testify to that? Okay? Those are are things that change, and I have that conversation. Actually, I'm amazed at how many people have brought that up, just how light their sleep is. So on one hand, they can't hear as well as they used to, but then for some reason... (laughs) The smallest of sounds, the, the lowest of sounds in the middle of the night will wake them up and they sleep very, uh, very light. And, and the blissful and uninterrupted sleep of youth is a thing of the past. His last image there in verse 4 says, All the daughters of song will sing softly, or literally it will, will be brought low. Uh, which could refer again to deafness and the fading of the music, or maybe it's the individual's own ability to, to sing, their own music abilities that, that diminish. Uh, whatever the case, the thing that dominates this, if you think about everything that he's saying, if you put one word over it, it's loss. Okay, this, A sense of loss dominates this scene of this mansion, of this house. He goes on there in verse 5 and says, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. So he talks about these, these men being afraid of a high place, being afraid of, of, of uh, threats on the road, on the way. This, this once young man who used to climb mountains and scale cliffs, uh, exhilarated by the sheer risk and the danger of it, right? So we're talking about an adrenaline junkie, okay? This guy just doing all these dangerous things. But now, the thought of standing in the seat of a chair to reach something on the top shelf or to change a light bulb, light bulb may likely end with a fall and a broken hip. Also gone is the ability to adapt to fast-moving situations, right? These terrors on the road. Reacting to threats on, on the road of that day. Robbers or, or sudden, a sudden change in the weather. And you say, well, if you're young, say, say, say you're out there and you twist an ankle. Well, if you're young, what do, what do you do? Well, you just hop to the next town. 
But when you're 70, you, don't, you can't do that, right? As you get older, it gets harder and harder to cope with the pace of life and of change. Things slow down, and you begin to calculate time not with a stopwatch, but with a calendar. Then he says the almond tree blossoms. Now, in ancient Israel, the almond tree was the first tree to blossom or bloom in, in the spring. Actually, the, the bloom would come out before even the, the leaves. Um, before the, uh, and, and before the flowers fell from the almond tree, the, the, the blossom would turn this snowy white color. So it's just simply a reference here to uh, the hair turning white. didn't say anything about turning loose, just turning turning white, although it did both, right? I mean, it fell to the ground, <laughs> so these would turn snowy white, and they would fall from the tree. Uh, he made a reference, and we looked at it last week, about uh, back in chapter 11, verse 10, when he talks about this, uses this term, uh, childhood in the prime of life, that it's actually a term that refers to darkness. But in that case, we said it, it it's, most people believe it's talking to dark hair, about dark hair. Yeah, <laughs> got a little commentary going on back there. So he's just saying it once in the prime of life. In the prime of life, you had dark hair, but eventually that that dark hair turns white and turns loose. And then he says the grass the grasshopper drags himself along. Now, normally grasshoppers are pretty impressive creatures and pretty impressive leapers, but when a grasshopper can't jump, it just looks awkward and painful. So it is with the aging person whose arthritis is making life difficult. The once strong legs and arms have atrophied so that the joints stick out and the angles are awkward. So it just seems like they're just, they're just angles, right? <laughs> they're, just, they're just joints. Um, it takes a long time to get anywhere, right? So the grasshopper just drags himself along, and then finally he says the caperberry is in Effective. Now, caperberries were used in that day as an aphrodisiac. So we're talking about, this is like ancient Viagra, okay? And he's saying that they would use it for that purpose, but he's just saying that's ineffective, right? That's ineffective. Now, no matter how strong a dose, sexual desire and potency decline. Some also believe that caperberries would increase a person's appetite, which would make sense here because we know that old, old people tend to lose their appetite. So they would use it for that, that purpose as well. And this road, Solomon says, eventually ends in the dust of death. He says, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. In other words, every man, every woman, every person goes to the grave. Not speaking of eternal life here. But he's saying that, that you will die, you, you will die, and, and when, when your family and your friends gather, uh, when they get together to mourn your death, uh, no matter how much they cry and no matter how long they mourn, there's nothing that they can do to change it, nothing they can do to reverse it. They can go about, they can tell stories, cry out, wail, but there's nothing that they can do to undo the fact of Genesis 3. And then in verse 6, Solomon gives us two more pictures of death. The New American Standard here supplies the verb remember him. It's not actually in the text, but it's just 
the, the, that, the, the NASB just does that to remind us how, just so that we don't forget how this chapter began back in verse 1. But he says, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Uh, this is most likely one final look back at the decaying mansion of verses 3 and 4. The golden bowl probably refers to a lamp that lights the house, hung in the center of the house with some kind of chain, or in this case he says a silver cord, and, it, and its life represents the light of life. But the cord snaps, he says, and the lamp falls and crashes on the floor, and the light is suddenly extinguished. Death claims its victory, and darkness covers the house. Interestingly, it's very likely that only wealthy people would have had these kinds of lamps, these such costly lamps, which may be Solomon's way of saying that death is no respecter of persons. It could just be saying, listen, you got a golden bowl and you got a silver cord, but guess what? It, the silver cord breaks and the golden bowl is, is crushed and shattered. It doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're rich. This is coming to all men. In addition, the wheel that was raised to give life-giving water from the cistern is in pieces. The pitcher that was used to carry the water to the house lies broken on the ground next to the cistern. And with no more light... And with no more means of obtaining life-giving water, the house is abandoned. The twisted, crippled body, ravaged by age, is emptied of its spirit, and only death remains. Verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So where are we? So, so where are we? Okay, we're getting to the end. Where are we? Well... We're, we're right back in Genesis 3. <laughs> we're, we're at the curse. Genesis 3, chapter 17, Moses recorded, he says, uh, then, then to Adam the Lord said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's the curse. He's just saying we, we can never escape this, which doesn't sound very encouraging but it's the Bible, right? It's true. And then Solomon says something that takes us back to the beginning, not back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, but back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes in the, in the very first chapter in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, he says there in verse 8, says the preacher, all is vanity. So you and I are on an inevitable slide to the grave. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. Which sounds hopeless, but not for those who pay attention and who do what Solomon has said for us to do in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator. Getting to know our Creator before we grow old and die is the most important thing that we can ever do. To the young people, Solomon cries out, Remember God now. While you still have your wits about you, 
while you are still charting your course in life, while you are making important decisions about what to do with your abilities and your gifts, while you still have a whole lifetime to live for His glory. And this is the beauty of the Bible, that you don't have to pay the tuition that foolish people pay to learn these things, right? I mean, the fact that you might be here this morning and, and be a, in that category of young people and to hear these kinds of admonitions and instructions, what a blessing. So Solomon says, don't wait until you are old to put God at the center of your life. Remember him. On the other hand, Solomon doesn't shield us from the reality that growing old and facing death are some of the hardest experiences of life. And yet, he doesn't at all treat aging and dying without dignity. In fact, he shows us through this, through the use of this incredible poem, this beautiful poem, the loving care of God for his people all through life, even down to old age and then onto the grave. In fact, Psalm, Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And it's not only the death of his saints that is precious to God, they are precious to God throughout the whole process of aging. Even as you grow old, you are alive by the power of the Spirit living in you. Though outwardly you are wasting away, inwardly you are being renewed day by day. And be encouraged by this as well. Your Lord remembers you even if you don't remember Him. (laughs) Right? I mean, if you've entrusted yourself to the Lord, there may come a time when you don't remember everything that you used to know about even your own walk with the Lord, your own relationship with the Lord. But God won't forget. Even to old age and gray hairs, God will not forsake you. So life isn't to be taken casually. It's not to be taken carelessly because life doesn't go on continuously. This is a message to those who are young. God has designed you to be empty without Him. You're not getting any younger. Now is the time to prepare for eternity. Remember your Creator, relate to Him, walk with Him, learn to know Him while you were young, before the pressures to conform go up, before the evil pressures to fit into the ways of the world increase. Follow the example of Christ who put God first in His life, who understood the key to life and understood how to handle the problems and pressures of life who knew that the key was to be in relationship and communication with the living God who is at work in the affairs of men. Christ saturated his mind with the scriptures. He filled his mind with what God had said and kept increasing, scripture tells us, in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. Follow his example. Then there's also a message to the elderly. Finish your course with joy. Still bearing fruit, full of sap, and green, ripe for ongoing ministry. Solomon says, be a lifelong learner. Be a lifelong influencer and a relational force shaping some aspects of, or some aspect of someone else's life. You don't have to be gripped by the fears of the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death. You don't have to be tossed about. Remember your Creator, who is also your Savior, and the one who promises life, eternal life, to those who trust in Christ. Let me just wrap up by having you turn over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. In verse 3, and this is is, uh, 
John, the Apostle John, in uh, Revelation 21, verse 3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So that is to say that the frustrations and the vanities that Solomon has been describing in Ecclesiastes have been resolved. Right? So we're dealing with Genesis, the curse of Genesis 3. But what John is describing here is saying it's gonna, it will, in God's plan, in His time, these things will be resolved, ultimately. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then He showed me a river of the waters of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be, what? Any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen? All right. Well, we'll stop there for this morning. We'll come back, um, and uh, we'll finish out beginning there in verse 9. We've got probably two more uh, lessons. Um, we'll probably tackle 9 to, 9 to 11, and then just save that conclusion, 13 14, for our last week of the study.